Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 15 on February 3rd, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is heating and our first major research project. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and some research updates. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you can find both the Low Tech Podcast and our Low Tech Lecture Series. Now, today's main topic is talking about what exactly I mean by major research project and also introducing our first one, which is a look at home, water, and space heating. So every year, we're going to pick a single topic for our major research push, and this topic is usually going to be a big step towards clothing, feeding, or housing ourselves in a self-sufficient way that doesn't use fossil fuels. Now, of course, we're going to show our work from the planning stages, which is what we're in right now, through the alpha and beta testing and the cost analysis and a complete final write-up. All this information is going to be available on our website because that's what we're here to do, to provide the service of showing you everything we've gone through to develop these different solutions and ideas. All of our solutions are going to be human scale, made out of simple materials, and approachable for the everyday person. Now, let's break that down a little bit. So human scale basically means I'm not going to be building a massive solar collector that takes up an entire city block and powers, you know, half of a, half of a small town. That's not human scale. Everything that we talk about doing should be doable by one person if they have a lot of time or a small group of people if they want to get it done over a shorter amount of time. Now, I also plan to use the simplest materials possible. There's a wide variety of materials out there and you can go from the most commonplace ones that you can get at a hardware store to the most complex ones that you have to order away special for. When there's a choice between these types of materials, everything we do is going to be using the simplest ones we can get, especially ones that we can make or acquire ourselves. And finally, approachable. I realize that some of the things I'll be building, like a, a wind turbine, are going to require some technical know-how and the ability to do some technical things. And I don't expect everybody to have the full skill set, but I do expect to use skills that are common enough that if you don't know how to do it, you probably know somebody who does. So for example, when I'm doing electrical wiring, perhaps you're not comfortable doing that, but I'm sure somebody in your network of friends or family does know enough about wiring something up that they'll be able to help you do this. Full instructions and notes will be made available on our website so you can replicate, adapt, and test the research for yourself. If you can't replicate it, what's the point of me doing this? And if you can't adapt it to your specific needs, for example, we're going to be talking about solar heating today. I live in Wisconsin, which experiences a lot colder winter than, say, somebody living in New Mexico. And so the type of solar heater I use might be different from what you need to use. But nevertheless, you should be able to use my information to adapt a solution for your specific location. And finally, without being able to replicate and test these for yourself, we're not going to work out all the different kinks because what might work well for me in my particular situation might not work well for you. But if you can make an adaptation 
or you can run tests on the same things I've done. You can give me feedback, which we can share on our website, and help others avoid either the mistakes that I've made or the mistakes that you've made. Now you might be asking, where is this going to be funded from? And that's a great question because I'm on the uh, horns of that dilemma right now. I'm actually uh, looking for both uh, public and private funds to help pay for the research. Uh, in very short order, we're going to have a property for the Institute, and we'll be running workshops and doing other revenue-generating projects that will also help pay for our research. I should also note that just because we're working on one major research project each year doesn't mean that we're not going to be doing lots of smaller scale things, like tweaks on our beehive design, or trying out different polycropping techniques, or other avenues. Whatever comes up, we're going to do that as it arises, but this major research project is a focused way to look into one specific research goal and really delve deep and spend a lot of time on it. That brings me to this year's major research project, and like I've mentioned before, it is looking into domestic heating of air and water. Now, why did I decide to tackle this first? There's a wide variety of things that we need to do over the following years, um, and we're interested in looking into like gray water systems, aquaponics, energy generation from solar power, wind power, all these different things will be coming down the road. But I really wanted to get right into domestic heating of water and air because it takes a lot of energy to heat water and to heat our houses. It's one of the largest uses of energy in the average home. So for example, uh, home water heating accounts for about 18% of domestic energy use, according to the 2009 Residential Energy Consumption Survey put out by the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Now, 2009 is the most recent data available, and this is a survey that looks at the number of BTUs used by households across the U.S. in uh, daily applications from appliances to space, water heating, and other, other applications. So 18% alone goes to home water heating. Um, and this goes for everything from your natural gas water heater, 60 gallons in the basement, to your electric version of the same thing, to point-of-use hot water heaters, which are small boxes that go under a sink, for example, that you turn the switch and it instantly generates a lot of hot water. All of these things together make up 18% of domestic energy use. And then we get to space heating, which draws over 41% of domestic energy use. If you think about the amount of energy it takes to heat up an entire house for an entire winter, you can see why we use 41% of our domestic energy on this. And that doesn't even account for AC. This is just heating. So if you think about everything from central air, forced air, electric or gas furnaces, to hydronic heating, or even steam boilers, all these things together end up drawing about 41% of domestic energy use. Most of this energy comes from electric and natural gas, at least in the heating realm. And both of these are derived from fossil fuels, either directly or indirectly. Natural gas is gotten out of the ground. We are all aware of what fracking is nowadays, the hydraulic fracturing to free up shale gas that's been trapped in otherwise untappable resources underground. This is a finite resource. We only have so much natural gas, and you hear estimates, often I hear around 100 years worth of natural gas in the U.S. at current use, but current use fluctuates. The price of natural gas has risen steadily over time, except for the last 10 years where there was a dip because of the increased national production, but prices are rising again, and they will continue to do so because, again, it's a finite resource. Near the end of its lifespan, it will become more and more expensive, period. Electricity 
is also generated from fossil fuels indirectly. Much of our electricity is generated from burning coal, natural gas, or oil. We also get electricity from uh, nuclear, hydro, wind, and things like that. And depending on where you live, a lot of the electricity is derived from fossil fuels. And just like the cost of everything, uh, the price of electricity is continuing to rise. And when I say they're rising, I mean if you take inflation into account, they're still rising. It's not just because things have gotten more expensive generally. No, no, no. I'm saying as a fixed cost, electricity and natural gas have gotten more expensive over time and will continue to do so. So relying on electricity and natural gas to heat our water and our homes is going to get increasingly expensive. And it's kind of unfortunate that we're locked into this current system because there are other solutions in place that once they're installed run at practically no cost. The upfront cost can be a little higher, however, we're going to try and build this ourselves at home with commonly available parts, and so perhaps my do-it-yourself method will be as cheap, perhaps, I don't know, as a normal conventional system installed. We'll see. We're, that's why we're doing the experiment. Can you do this at a reasonable price if you're fairly handy or have friends who are fairly handy? And what kind of system are we talking about? We're specifically talking about a solar system. Now, a solar system uses free and clean energy. Nobody's ever talked about peak sun or peak wind in the way that they talk about peak oil or peak natural gas, saying that we're going to hit our maximum amount available, and from then on it's a decline as prices rise. That's not happening with the sun. When the sun runs out, we don't have to worry about energy anymore because it'll have blown up and taken us with it. So we don't have to worry about the sun running out, and as long as there's sun, there's going to be wind on the surface of the earth. So why not harness those two free resources to make hot water and heat our homes. Much of my technical information for this topic has come from Ram Lau and Nuez's revised and expanded edition of Solar Water Heating, a comprehensive guide to solar water and space heating systems from 2010. I recommend if you want to do a little more deep reading on this to check out that book. Now one complaint that we often hear about solar power is that it only works when the sun shines. And of course this is true. The other problem that we don't really have an ideal solution to is the, what's called the battery problem. Now, we can get plenty of energy when the sun's shining, but then storing it in a battery becomes kind of difficult because our battery technology isn't quite up to where it should be. But that's only talking about one way in which we use solar energy. What we're talking about is using solar energy to heat water. And we do have good ways to store heat energy. The batteries are mostly for storing electric energy. We're talking about storing heat. And what we can do is build a large reservoir. Now you can use water, you can use food safe antifreeze, you can use sand, you can use a variety of different things to store the extra heat from the sun during the day and then slowly disperse that through the night until it gets heated up again the next day. And so we do have something that works to store heat overnight and while the sun's not shining. And in addition to using the sun to heat our water, what we're going to do, and I think what is new, because I haven't seen a specific system that's designed to use both sun and wind, but what we're going to do is use a wind-powered backup heating element to help keep the hot water reservoir, or the battery, topped up when the sun is down, and to provide extra power to the house when it's not needed for the hot water heater. And now out of this hot water battery system, we're going to, or a hot water reservoir, we're going to have our domestic hot water come out, as well as water to heat radiators. And that's how we're going to heat the home itself. 
using a hydronic system, which we can use to pump hot water through radiators in the house. Now this requires a larger reservoir of hot water, or that battery I was talking about, but it's not larger than would fit in the corner of a basement. We're not talking about taking up a room, we're talking about taking up the corner of a basement, which is what we already do for our furnaces or hot water heaters. Now let's take a look at the system as I'm proposing it and as my rough draft. This is the very beginnings, this is just the sketch of an idea, but let's break it down bit by bit and see what it looks like. The system itself consists of four interconnected systems. A solar heat collector that goes on your roof, a wind turbine, a domestic hot water system, and another radiator system that heats the home. So let's take a look at the, each one of these in turn. The main source of heat is a solar collector and this is installed on the south face of a roof. The angle of the collector is equal to the degrees latitude and this makes the collector perpendicular to the sun's rays catching the most possible solar radiation throughout the day. Cool water from the reservoir, or what I've talked about as being a heat battery, we'll just call it a reservoir from now on, cool water from the reservoir is pumped up and through the collector and this raises the temperature of the water into the high 100 degrees Fahrenheit before it goes back into the reservoir. The pump itself is a high temp hydronic heating system pump, which you can get at most hardware stores, and it's probably on the order of 10 to 20 gallons per hour, but we're going to have to dial that in when we have our specific system in place. It doesn't use a lot of energy, about 100 watts an hour, or 0.1 kilowatt hours, and that can easily be powered by the wind or even a PV panel that could go on the roof next to the solar collectors. This pump is controlled thermostatically. That means by temperature and as water in the tank or in the reservoir cools, the pump moves it up to the solar collector to get warm again. Once the reservoir gets to the target temperature, the pump can turn off. The heart of this whole system is a large insulated tank of water that is filled with non-toxic antifreeze. It's mostly water, but it will have a little antifreeze in there. And again, non-toxic antifreeze to keep it from freezing and bursting the pipes in the winter. The tank acts as a battery, as I've said before. It stores heat and it transfers it to the domestic water line and the hydronic radiator heat system. It'll probably be in the area of a few hundred gallons because it has to heat two systems. If you're just doing hot water, we could get by with a much smaller reservoir. Ideal temperatures for this heat reservoir might be over 160 degrees, and we'll have to temper the domestic water coming out of that so we don't burn ourselves, but a higher temperature is good for a number of reasons. Number one, it stores more energy. That means we have more power or more heating power on hand when we need it if the sun's down for a couple days, and it is more effective for heating the radiant heat. Now, we have three designs for the collector, and I'll outline them in a blog post coming up, but for the most part, what happens in the actual solar collector is water comes in through a bottom pipe and it goes up a number of riser pipes. And sometimes these go in parallel to one another. Sometimes they course back and forth like a snake. These pipes are all connected, uh, often soldered, to a metal backing. And that metal backing gets hot from the sun's rays and it transfers that to the pipe, which transfers the heat to the water. And this is all painted matte black, of course. All these pipes are put in a wooden frame with a glass front, so it gets quite a lot of greenhouse effect and really heats up even in the dead of winter. Now let's look at the domestic hot water system. So this is actually the simplest part of it. 
really uh, it is just taking the normal water main coming in and pumping that cold water into a tank that is within the reservoir. So the reservoir is a large vat of water and in that is a smaller tank and that tank is plumbed with the water coming in. It sits in there just like it would in a normal water heater and heats up and then when you turn the faucet or whatever pressure pushes the hot water out, it gets tempered to make sure that it's not going to burn you and then it comes out the faucet as hot water and as the reservoir, excuse me, as the tank empties more water comes in from the main into the hot water tank and it gets warmed up and then goes back out to be used as hot water. That's really about all it is. Very straightforward. It's just using a smaller hot water tank within the reservoir to capture that solar energy that's been stored in the reservoir. The electric system is a little more complicated. I'm choosing to use energy generated through a windmill. And the reason is we can have wind all night or on a cloudy day. And so it gives a good counterbalance to the solar collector because the solar collector is going to run when the sun's out. The wind will run more intermittently or at different times that are a little more unpredictable. Therefore, we're probably going to have our bases covered to run the system either through solar heat or through wind heat. So basically, how does the electric system work? It is a large windmill on top of a tower that generates electricity, which runs into the house into a small battery bank. And we can get away with a smaller battery bank because we're not running the whole hot water system off of this. We're only running a few small pumps that take 100 watts each. So it's really not much. The only time that we would really need a fair amount of energy is when we're running the heating elements. And I only expect that to happen during the coldest mornings when there hasn't been a lot of sun recently. In short, the electricity comes in to the battery bank and then it goes out to the house through an AC adapter, which will power both the pumps, as I've said, and the element when necessary. We're going to have to dial in what size of turbine and what, how much output that can do when we get our system set up. But the nice thing is, anytime the electricity is being generated in excess of what we need, that can be passed on to the house for domestic use. Now let's talk a little bit about the heating. Most of us are familiar with steam pipes. And steam pipes rely on a boiler, usually in the basement, that gets heated up enough that the water boils and steam rises. Steam rises up the distribution pipes into the steam radiators where it touches the cold, at least relative to the steam, air around it, condensing the water on the sides. That water collects at the bottom and then runs back down the same pipe into the boiler to be heated and boiled up again. We're not going to approach steam heat. We wouldn't want to, that's too hot. We're going to use what's called hydronic radiators. Hydronic radiators operate around 170 to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it's a much lower temperature that is closer to something we can attain with a solar water heater. Hydronic heating does the same thing as steam except it uses a pump. Hot water is pumped through a series of distribution pipes into radiators. Those radiators often have fins or a lot of surface area so that hot water can release a lot of its heat into the room. And then as it cools, it exits a discharge pipe back into the system, goes back into the reservoir to get heated, and then go back through the loop again. Now in the winter, we'll have a large system of radiators open through a series of valves. We'll open it and then the house will be heated through water that's been warmed in the solar reservoir. In the summer, 
we can close those valves off and store all the heat in that reservoir and not unnecessarily heat the house in the summer when we don't want to be hot anyway. That's really the long and the short of it. It is a large reservoir of water that's heated by the sun. That heat is transferred to domestic hot water and to a radiator system that heats the house itself. It's powered by the sun, and then when the sun's not out and there's wind, it's powered by the wind. But even if the sun's not out and it's not windy, there should be enough thermal inertia in a large body of water like that reservoir that it will stay warm for quite a while on its own. Exactly how long that is, we're going to have to find out through experimentation. And that's why we're building this thing. So stay tuned for updates on this and follow-ups because over the next few weeks and months, and really through the rest of the year, I'll be bringing you updates on this project and how it's going. One of the first things we do once we get a little bit of funding flowing and a permanent location is build some prototypes. So we're going to build a couple different types of solar collector manifolds and see which is the best one for us in our area and for our needs. And then we'll do a larger build of that. But the first thing we're going to really see with hands-on work is the building of these models. And I'm already really looking forward to that. All right, let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. It was a busy week, and we had a ton of good articles to link to on today's blog post. We have a few posts on sustainable food systems, from the permaculture food forest on the Natural Building blog, to a story from Grist about a Native American community that is growing more of its own food to combat the lack of locally available choices. So check those two stories out. Deep Green Permaculture has a devil of a post on grafting eggplants onto perennial rootstock. And Treehugger outlines a few ways to get veggies into kitties. So check those out too. Treehugger had another story that really struck a chord with me this week. It's entitled, Don't Hunker in the Bunker, Learn How to Do Stuff That's Useful. It's a good way to explain what we're all about here at the Institute. While you might have noticed some stories, such as the one in the New Yorker, about some wealthy folks and their secure bunker locations, we agree with the sentiment of this article that it's better to learn useful skills and practice them in your daily life instead of having some expensive and mothballed bunker waiting. The author points out that a stationary location like a bunker can fall under siege, and gets into a little more detail about that. That really isn't too interesting to me, but I really think the main point is that those with the skills to care for themselves and their community will be the ones best off in some future scenario where bunkers might be used by some. Now, I'm not a prepper. I don't think the world is going to come crashing down tomorrow, but I do think it's worth cultivating the skills we talk about here at the Institute. That's why we're here, and that's why all our information is free and open access. So those are some of the stories we're following this week in Low-Tech News. To see links to the stories we've discussed and more, visit the Low-Tech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. I've moved the mushrooms into a warmer room. They seemed to be too cold before in the 60s, but now they're in the 80s, and I'm keeping them nice and damp. And so we'll see if we get some fungal growth, and maybe in another month or two, we could hope to see a few mushrooms. We'll see, fingers crossed. Otherwise, as you heard today, we've been taking our first focused look into solar heating. We've also finished our draft articles of incorporation, bylaws, and operational plan for 2017. Much of our plans are up in the air for the time being, as we continue our search for a permanent home. To catch you up, we're looking for a farmette in the Madison, Wisconsin area. 
Ideally, it would have over five acres so that we can include livestock in our plans. We prefer an old farmhouse that is ready to be retrofitted with experimental solutions for cooking, lighting, power, and, of course, heating. We'd love to find something with outbuildings that can serve as the offices and workshops of the Institute, as well as some space to host events. We foresee having movie nights under the stars, seed swaps, workshops, and educational programming, and we may even host private events like weddings, if the place is right and people are interested. We've seen some promising properties, and we'll be sure to announce any news as soon as we have it, but we're moving forward, and I think we are cautiously optimistic that by this spring we'll be in a new permanent location and we'll really be able to push out these new events and have a lot more to do and to offer to the local community. That's it for the Low Tech Podcast this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Our intro music was Cut in the Reel, off the album The Real by Nada Baba. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, and Sharealike License. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating because it helps boost our audience reach. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, wordpress.com you can follow us on twitter at low underscore techno and you can reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com i'd be happy to have your feedback so thanks a lot and take care